In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. For God so loved the world that he gave. Good morning, church family. We're glad that you're here this morning. It is Christmas season. I know some of you have been saying happy Thanksgiving to me in the hallway and all that stuff. Let me tell you something. Thanksgiving's over, but we're grateful. We're grateful that it's now Christmas season. So we're glad that you're here. And uh, if you're a guest, we're really thankful that you decided to come. If you just read your worship program, there's some information we want you to know in there. And uh, go out to the orange tent. Uh, today. But what we're doing today is we're beginning our brand new series for the Christmas season called The Gift of God. It's all about Jesus Christ. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 through the whole series. And so if you want to start there and start reading through it um, yourself on your own time as well, uh, that would be wonderful to just enrich our experience together. But I'm going to pray for us. I will pray a prayer of thanksgiving for those of you who are mad at me about uh, distant thanksgiving there. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into our Christmas series here. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you gave your son Jesus Christ. Thank you uh, that we can rejoice in all circumstances. You tell us to rejoice, and again, you say rejoice, and we thank you. And I know for some people to hear that, they're going through junk. They're difficult stuff, whether it's in marriages, whether it's their health, their job. There's lots of things that happen, and we are thankful even for that. We meet you in that, that you comfort us in that, that you are rocking it, that you grow us in that, that you refine us, that you press sin out in that, and and God, I, I don't want that myself. I don't want that for anybody else, but we thank you for it. And I thank you for the blessings, too. I thank you for all the good things that you provided for the people that are in this room, that there's a church family, there's folks that care about one another, there's people that want to fulfill your will, there's people that want to hear from you. And as we come to your word, God, I pray you'd speak to us. I pray that we would encounter you this Christmas. I pray this wouldn't just be another Christmas, just a repackaging of the same things that we've done before, just going through the motions or just another thing on the calendar, more busyness, more materialism, more commercials. God, I pray that you would meet us this Christmas season. I pray that you would uh, clarify in our hearts what it is you have for us this Christmas season. I pray that it would be unique, it would be special, and that you'd do something unique and special in each one of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Christmas season is uh, an exciting time, especially if you're a kid. Uh, yesterday in the kitchen with my five-year-old daughter, she said, Dad, how many days did it tell Christmas? I still haven't looked, so I don't know exactly. But I said, I don't know, 30, maybe 29. And then her eyes lit up, and she said, 29 is less than 30. Like, it's getting closer. I'm pumped. 
my seven-year-old daughter, we were decorating, so we're a family that my wife makes us wait until after Thanksgiving. She's a traditionalist. She makes us wait till after Thanksgiving to decorate. And we were decorating this weekend, and so we had a bunch of stuff out, and my seven-year-old daughter grabbed a bunch of the extra decorations, like things we didn't use this year, and she went up to her bedroom, and she decorated her bedroom with it. And she had this little tree. It's like a two-and-a-half-foot, three-foot-tall tree, and she's got lights on it and like random ornaments that we don't put on our tree anymore on there. And she was skipping through the house going, it's so glorious. Like she literally was just so pumped about what was happening in that. And as a kid, it's easy to have a bunch of hope. And maybe it's just a hope because like the lights in the, in the dark, they're kind of magical looking. Or maybe it's just a hope, like it's a hope for a present. <laughs> I don't know what the hope is. Maybe it's a hope, maybe it's a genuine hope, you know, like Jesus, just thinking about Jesus coming, his advent, his coming here with us. But as adults, we can get jaded. As adults, sometimes we get cynical because we just think, well, Christmas is just consumers. It's just there's so many commercials. There's so much junk out there to buy. So we're going to throw away like two years later, whatever it is. Just a bunch of stuff. It's a retail holiday. We sprinkle a little bit of religion in. Some of you are cynical like that. Some people, you've been through difficult experiences or you're experiencing difficult things or it's a time to remind you of your loneliness or it's a time that you're reminded of a death or it's a, a divorce or there's all kinds of difficult things that happen. And I was thinking about today we begin this series called The Gift of God and we're talking about the gift of hope, even when hope seems lost. A lot of people fall in different categories when it comes to hope. And to help illustrate the two main categories people fall into, I think we can see them in characters in two of the most popular Christmas movies this time of year. The first one's Home Alone. I bet 99.9999% of all of you have seen this movie. If you haven't seen this movie, welcome to America. We're glad that you're here. Thank you for being here today. But Home Alone, you know the movie, what happens, they leave their, it happens multiple times somehow, but the first one is what I'm referring to, they leave their kid at home, they go to Paris. When they get to Paris, they realize that Kevin, their youngest kid, I think he's the youngest, whatever, he's there back at home, and his older brother is the key part of the scene that I love the most. Do you know what scene I'm talking about where Buzz is telling why it is he's not upset or not worried about his brother being back in the United States? His sister says to him something like, you know, aren't you concerned? He says, I'm not concerned for three reasons. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody tell me you've seen this movie. <laughs> Hopefully I won't slaughter it now. You've all seen it. All right. What happens is that Buzz says there's three reasons why I'm not concerned. First reason, he says, A, because I'm not that lucky. Two, because we've got smoke detectors. And this is why I love the scene. D, this is the next option. He says, D, because we live on the most boring street in the United States of America. Nothing even remotely dangerous will ever happen, period. That's the Buzz category of where some people are at in hope. And here's why. Nothing happened last year, ain't nothing going to happen this year, is what you're thinking. Sometimes God changes people's lives, not mine. Sometimes he does miracles, answers prayers, not mine. So you're kind of skeptical. There's not much hope there. The other category of people, some of you know where I'm going, can you guess? Clark Griswold's category of hope. How about that guy? Like, it doesn't even have to be just a Christmas movie. That guy's excited about every, he just wants it to be great. It always flops, but he just wants it to be great for everybody. Oh, it doesn't matter if it's Wally World. It's gonna be, it doesn't matter if it's shut down. It's going to be awesome. His Christmas bonus check, it doesn't matter if it's Jelly of the Month. We're going to love Jelly. All right, maybe he didn't love that part. But how about when the Christmas lights are, it's time to, first time he goes to do the Christmas lights, the first time, because you know this is multiple scenes in this movie. First time he goes to do the Christmas lights, he says, what is it, is it, 250 strands, 100 bulbs each, Italian, twinkle lights, and he grabs it, and he puts it together, and he is so sure they're going to come on at that moment. They don't. They eventually come on, just so you know if you haven't seen the movie. But he is big-eyed, he's pumped about life, and some of you are in that category. You don't know what God's going to do, but it's going to be good. Can I tell you where I'm at? I kind of waver between the two. Some days I'm more like Buzz. I don't know. I'm just going through. It's like the next thing on the calendar. I'm already too busy. And there's all this stuff to do. And then sometimes I'm like, God's going to do something. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be good. 
It can change for me between services, just so you know. <laughs> and where are you at? Where would you put yourself when you think about hope? We're doing this series called The Gift of God. We know throughout the Bible, God talks about being a gift giver. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, it says we are saved. He's talking about believers in Jesus Christ. You've been rescued from your sin. That's what it means to be saved. You were headed down your path. God grabbed you, put you down a different path. You've been saved by grace through faith. Not of your works. It's the gift of God. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages, what we earn when we're going our own way, when we're doing our sin, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Once, one time, the most famous verse in the whole Bible, for God so loved the world, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave. God is a giver, and the gift that he gives us is Jesus Christ. And what we celebrate is the coming, the advent is the coming of Jesus Christ at this season. And so what does that coming point us to? It points us to him being the gift, the gift giver that gives us life, that gives us love, that gives us grace, that gives us forgiveness. Today we're going to talk about a story that actually comes right before the announcement of the birth of Jesus. And it points to the coming of Christ gives us hope, even when hope seems lost. Today we're talking about the gift of hope. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 1, and really the context is given to us in verses 1 through 4, historical context for the book of Luke, that when Jesus came, it was dark days. God hadn't spoke to the people in 400 years. I'm going to say it a lot of times throughout this message. You might want to write it down. God hadn't spoken to the people in 400 years of prophetic silence. And Herod's the king. Herod's an awful king. So you don't even know all the historical details, but that's the summary of it. Historically, he had about nine or ten wives. We don't know for sure. Some people say nine, some people say ten. He killed one of them. We don't even know why. He had two sons that he killed because he was paranoid they were trying to take his throne. If you want to see his paranoia, read Matthew chapter 2. It's one of the parts of the Christmas story. A lot of times we read pie real quick. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's not real family friendly. He killed all the babies that were two and under because he was afraid that maybe the king of the Jews had been born would threaten his throne. He wasn't even fully Jewish. The Jewish people hated him. He's continually, he's a pleaser. He's continually trying to get them to like him. And he'd oppress the people. So it was dark days. But why did Luke write? Read verses 1 through 4 with me. Inasmuch as many have undertaken, so a lot of people have already done this, he's not doing something no one else has done, to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and so there were eyewitnesses. Luke was not one of the eyewitnesses. Luke, we read in the, in the book of Acts, he's spent time with Paul, he's traveled with Paul, but he was not one of the people that walked with Jesus. What he did, he's a historian who went back and interviewed eyewitnesses. He probably interviewed Mary. And that's why he has so much information about the birth of Jesus that the other gospel writers don't write about. And so he knows about the shepherds. He knows about the magi. He knows about what it was like in, in that manger. He knows all these details. He probably interviewed Mary as an eyewitness. And so we're getting her account here. So he says, the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. They've delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. And then he says to a guy, most excellent Theophilus. And so Paul's writing to this guy. Maybe he's a new believer. Maybe he's not a believer yet. And some of you are new to Southbridge. Some of you already know this information. But at our church, we challenge everybody who becomes a member of our church to have at least one person they're praying for. And a lot of times you'll, you'll hear that, we'll talk about who's your one. It's one person you're praying for, that your heart's burdened for, that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's one person who doesn't know Jesus yet, and that your heart would break for that person, and that you would try to share the gospel with that person. We launched that, that idea, that vision, about five years ago, and we said over the next 10 years, let's have 10 people that we've been praying for to try and lead to Jesus Christ. Theophilus was Luke's one. That's why he's writing this whole book. It's impacted billions of people. It's because of his, he's writing, most excellent Theophilus, probably a dignitary, Theophilus, 
my heart's burdened for you. I'm writing this for you, Theophilus. Why? That you may have, and you might underline this word, it's key, certainty concerning the things you've been taught. I want you to know that this isn't just some teaching that's out there. This is not just another tradition. I want you to be certain about Jesus Christ. I want you to be certain about your relationship with Jesus. I want you to be certain about the details of his life. And so I'm, I'm writing down a, a detailed and orderly account from eyewitnesses. I've done my homework, and I believe that it was led by the Spirit. He says, it seemed good to me, kind of like the book of Acts says. It seemed good to us and also the Holy Spirit. And so he writes these things down. But then what he writes next is interesting, because if you haven't read Luke before, you think, now he's going to tell us about Jesus. And he doesn't. You ever watch a movie, and at the beginning of the movie, it says, six months earlier. That's what this is like. Six months before the announcement of the birth of Jesus, this is what was taking place. Look at it. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, dark days, I told you that. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. And so macro, God hasn't spoken in 400 years. Herod's the king, dark days. Now micro, we're going to zoom into the life of this one family. There's a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, which means that she too came from the line of priests. Her name was Elizabeth, and they both were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean they're morally perfect, because we see in verses 18 through 20, Zechariah sins in this very passage. So why does he tell us this? Verse 7, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, many people believed then that if you didn't have children, it was because of God's judgment in your life because of your sin. And what Luke's telling us here is that's not why. But they don't have children. And they're past childbearing years. In other words, no hope. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice in his birth. Joy is a theme that we'll see all throughout these Christmas stories. In fact, the, the, the gift that we'll talk about on Christmas Eve is the gift of joy. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And all the Baptists said, Amen. He's John the Baptist after all. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verses 16 and 17 are crucial in understanding what this passage is all about. Why this is here? Why did Luke write this? Why does he put John the Baptist in before he even talks about Jesus? And what we see here, we get the big context, macro, dark days, God hasn't spoken 400 years. Herod's king. He's an oppressive ruler. He's a paranoid ruler. This is not a, there's no hope in the political system. He's all about himself. There's no hope in trusting in this guy. And then you zoom into a faithful couple. They've been faithful. They're walking with the Lord. And there's no hope in their life either. Hope has passed. But what we see in this passage of Scripture is at least three reasons why we can have real hope, a certain hope. Back to verse 4, I wrote these things that you could have certainty, a certain hope, even when it seems that hope has gone by, even when we look at circumstances and there's no hope in the circumstances. Why can we have hope? And the first reason is this, and it's our first point, because God always keeps his promises. 
God always keeps his promises. That's what this whole passage is about, by the way, that God keeps his promises. That's why this is here. This is not a story that we read about this couple, and this couple was going through difficulty, and God intervened, and maybe you're going through difficulty, so maybe God will intervene. No, that's not what the point of this passage is. The point of this passage is God always keeps his promises. What he does is he shows us in the context of hopelessness that those who are hoping in the right thing could always have hope. 400 years, God hasn't spoken. What did he say 400 years ago? When you look for 1670, it's going to be real key here in just a little bit. Herod's king, and then you got this couple, and we'll come back to the struggle of their barrenness here, but they're, they're barren. She can't have a child. Jewish teachers in that day taught that if your wife can't have a child, divorce her so you can go have children. It's a pretty hopeless situation. Zechariah stayed with her. Elizabeth, she's born the shame, the guilt, all of the questions and the doubt that comes with that. But what the passage does is it then zooms us into this specific day that was really a highlight in Zechariah's life. So after verse 7, which shows us the hopelessness, you got verse 8. And we'll have to try to imagine what it was like in verse 8 to be Zechariah. He's a priest. He's one of 20,000 priests. He only serves at the temple two weeks a year, and they cast lots to decide who gets to do what job. Because even the priests argue about, oh, you like him more, and that's why this, and I deserve a promotion. So even the priests are doing that stuff. So they're casting lots. The lot falls on him to burn incense. That's the highest honor you can have. So this is a highlight of his career. This is something that happens only once in a lifetime, because if you've done it once, they don't let you do it again. Once in a lifetime opportunity. So think about that in your life. How many of those do you have? There's like a one, something that happens that's so special that you know in the moment it's going to be a significant moment in your life. The birth of a child. Some of you have had you know, one or ten of those, you know, somewhere in there. But still, there's a limited amount. A graduation, a marriage, like there's certain things, that you, a bucket list thing that you always want to do, some vacation you want to go on, something you wanted to do. So you know ahead of time, this is going to be a significant moment, so you want to take it all in, right? In those moments, not something you want to miss. You don't want to miss the moment. That's the kind of moment that Zechariah is in. And so he goes to bed that night and trying to imagine what it was like to be him to wake up the next morning. Probably woke up early, had exactly the priestly robe that he was going to wear, knew exactly what he was going to do. Think about when you've had these moments. And what would happen is that day at 9 o'clock in the morning, a trumpet would blow three times. It would summon the whole city that it was time to come to worship. The gates of the temple would open. There'd be a priest at the pinnacle of the temple, and he'd summon everyone to come in. they come in in a spirit of worship. An organ would start to play. So, sorry, we don't have one of those, but that's, that's what they did then. That was the right way to worship. They had the organ. And then two of his assistants would go in to the altar that was in this holy place, right before the Holy of Holies which no one was allowed to go to. Holy, you can't go to the Holy of Holies at the presence of God. You'll die in the presence of God. So think about the weight of that for the priest coming in here to burn this incense. You can't, you can't go into that. And so these two other guys go in. They scrub the altar down. One guy comes in. He puts these burnt coals on it. And then they leave. And then Zechariah is going to go in all by himself. Organs playing. People are outside waiting for him. Read the passage. It talks about this, the crowd that was out there. They're waiting for him to come out and pronounce number six over them. God bless you and keep you. Let his face shine upon you and give you his peace. He's supposed to come out and say those words to them after he's done. And as special as this is, most of the priests rushed through it because of their fear of the Holy of Holies. They knew that Moses said, if anyone sees God, they will die. They knew that this is the presence where God dwelt. So he comes in to this holy place and he's going to burn his incense, but he's going to say the prayer real quick, and he's going to do the thing. And there's this candle that's on the right that's burning. The guys that had gone in before, and they, they lit this candle, and they could see this curtain. Imagine you can smell the candle burning, you can see it flickering in the light. You know behind that curtain is the presence of God, the fear that would be in that moment. And then were you reading the passage? Did you read verse 11? Did you see what happens next when fear fell on him? You ever been in a moment in your life 
where there's both fear, but then the fear causes you to depend upon God? Ever had one of those moments? Maybe you didn't know what was going to happen, something unexpected happened. I remember when we had our, our first baby, I was telling this story in the first service, I messed it up bad in the first service, and so we're going to use this recording. Hopefully I'll get it right, because my wife rebuked me and told me the details. <laughs> we had our first baby, we brought her home. We didn't know what to do, by the way. I didn't know what to do, at least. That was part of the rebuke, I guess. But it was a girl. We had a baby girl. I'm not a girl, for those of you who haven't made that observation yet. I didn't have any sisters growing up. I didn't know how to change a diaper. I remember when it was time for the first bath, and my wife handed her to me, and I thought, I will break her. I don't even know what to do with her. I wasn't interested in knowing how girls go to the bathroom, so changing diapers was not something I was ready for. And then my wife was really sick right afterwards, and we didn't know what was happening. She was throwing up, and she woke up one morning in a pool of blood. We realized we needed to call a doctor at that point, called the doctor, and the doctor had us come in. It was, uh, I remember, a Saturday night after hours. There was no secretary there. There was no nurses there. It was just us and this doctor, the grandfatherly way about him, and he's leaning up against this desk, and he said, tell me when was the last time you ate because there's going to be an emergency surgery. So what's he prepping for? She said, well, we just ate dinner. And he said, well, well maybe we can wait. But if you have it happen again, then we've got to get you in here. And it happened again. I'm going to go into the hospital, and there's going to be the surgery. And they wheel my wife away, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm toast. If something happens to her, I don't know what I'm doing. And what we talked about this morning was that she told me, I was thinking, and I didn't tell her that that's what I was thinking. She goes, I was thinking, he doesn't know what he's doing. He'll be, if something happens to me, that is so true. I didn't want to idolize my wife, but if she'd have been, I'd have been in so much, I'd still be in trouble if she was gone. But I was afraid. And it forced me to depend upon God. You, you, I don't know, some of you have been there. Zechariah thinks he's about to die, just so you know. A few of you have probably had that experience. Car, you, know, you see a car about to hit you, something's going to happen, you're in the military, some, some situation. Zechariah, if you go back to verse 11, he's there in this moment. He's already got this holy reverence because he's before the holy of holies. But then look at verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the, and this is crucial, the right side of the altar of incense. And so his fear, his holy reverence, which he should have, is because of the holiness of God being on the other side of the Holy of Holies, that curtain that we hear about again at the cross when the veil is torn so that we can all go into the presence of God. Well, it's separating right now. And he's, he's got to be wondering, what's it like on the other side of that curtain? And then on the right side of the altar, let me tell you why that's significant. Jewish tradition taught that the right side of the altar was reserved for the presence of God. The left side of the altar was for the angel of the Lord, the angel Gabriel. You know what God's showing? I don't care about y'all's traditions. The angel's on the right side, but Zechariah is probably thinking, is that God himself? And I know the Bible says if you see God, you die. And the text says that fear fell upon him. <laughs> yeah, it overtook him. But then the angel said to him, do not be afraid. And Zechariah said, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> no, but he probably thought it, so that's why I said. Zechariah told you, your prayer's been heard. And he goes on to describe this child that he's going to give birth to, he's going to name John. He tells what this child's going to be like, but verses 16 and 17 are key. And so I'm going to read them to you again, because this is what the whole point of the passage is about. Then I'm going to read you a couple other verses, and I want you to listen to how similar they are. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn their hearts of their fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord... A people prepared. There's our promise. 
Do you know what the last promise was in the Old Testament? I told you it's been 400 years. If you haven't noticed that yet, I've said it lots of times. 400 years since God's spoken to the people. You know the last thing he said to them? The last promise in the Old Testament? If you've got your Bible, you can flip back to the last couple verses of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come, here's the other option, to strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So what did verse 16 and 17 say? And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, the Lord their God. What did Malachi say? In the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Here's what we got. The first promise of the New Testament is the same as the last promise of the Old Testament. The point of this passage is not Zechariah and Elizabeth had difficulty. If you have difficulty, God intervened in their life. Maybe he'll intervene in their life. No, the point of the passage, Luke's pointing out to us, God keeps his promises. Some of you have had promises broken to you. And so to hear that word, he's like, well, maybe sometimes, maybe he's mostly reliable. No, God always keeps his promises. Every promise that he gives, it's a yes in Christ Jesus. So what has he promised us? And here's the problem for some of us. It was 400 years, right? That wasn't on anybody's timetable. There was nobody going, all right, God made this promise. I can't wait to see it happen. Maybe in like 400 years. <laughs> Most of us were like, God, you promised this. In like four hours is a long time. Maybe I go four days, not four weeks. 400 years? No way, 400 years? Jesus promised he's coming back. It's been 2,000 years. Does he still keep his promises? See, we can have a hope, and it's a certain hope. Remember he told Theophilus, I'm ready to you that you could have certainty. Do you know what's a certain hope? Biblical hope is different than the hope most of us think about. Most of us, I hope it snows this Christmas. Let me tell you something. You live in North Carolina. It's probably going to be 75. But you live in North Carolina. Who knows? Maybe it will snow. It could. It's possible. I hope that I get this present. I hope that I get this promotion. I hope this thing works out. And it's a wish. We wish that it would happen. Biblical hope is a certain hope, and here's why, because it's based on the promises of God, and God always keeps his promises, and so we can have certainty because of what we're hoping in. The problem is, for many of us, we're hoping in circumstances, and so we want God to balance out, change some circumstances, and then God oftentimes uses his delay in keeping his promises to show us, to reveal to us our circumstances or what we're actually hoping in. That's called an idol, by the way. And it might be a promotion, it might be a present, it might be a resolution of some circumstance, it might be, it's oftentimes in difficulty, it might be that this outcome will take place, what is it for you? I don't know what it is for you, what you're praying about probably reveals it. But God's delay, His timing, it's not our timing. Oftentimes He doesn't give us what we're hoping in, so that we'll then hope in Him. And so that we'll shift our hope from our circumstances to a person, that person is Jesus Christ. All of the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ, but we put our hope in other things. And so God delays sometimes to reveal to us what it is that we're hoping in, and it's an idol. And so what should we be hoping in? The promises of God. What are those? Well, I, we don't have enough time today. There are thousands of them in the Bible. Literally, the estimates I saw this week were between 3,000 and 8,000 promises in the Bible. How can they be so different? Well, some, some promises are specific to Israel. Some are specific to a person. But let me tell you what, just to you as a believer, a follower in Jesus Christ, there are literally thousands of promises in the Bible. Let me share with you a few of them. You might want to jot them down. There's a lot more. You can Google and find a bunch of them. But it says in Deuteronomy 4.29, if you search for him, you'll find him. Promise. Guaranteed. Here's something else. Think about this. God didn't have to make us one promise. He's the creator. He doesn't have to give us any guarantees. He doesn't have to give us any guidance. He doesn't have to tell us any of the stuff that he's up to. He doesn't have to tell us any of his plan, but he does. He gives us thousands of promises. Here's a few of them. 
He promises salvation to all who believe. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Salvation, the power of God. Comfort in trials. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Some of you going through difficulty, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is a great chapter on comfort. He promises comfort in trials. Then he works all things together for good for those who love him. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. If you wonder about that, you doubt that one. Let me give you an example. It's called the gospel. The worst sin that ever happened on earth is they murdered God's son, and God used that for your greatest good, your salvation. Amen? So God takes difficult things, bad things, and he works them for our good because he's got a plan, a bigger plan than what most of us plan, a plan of redemption, a plan in your life, and a plan to use your life. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. New life in Christ. We read that one off the screen earlier when we were worshiping. New life in Christ. The Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He promises forgiveness. A guarantee forgiveness based on his character. He is faithful. He is just. What is his action? He will forgive you of all unrighteousness if you confess your sins. First John 1, 9. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Some of you feel lonely in the Christmas season. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Abundant life for those who follow him, John chapter 10, verse 10. Some of you are worn out, your schedule's overloaded. Rest for those who come to him, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. He promises that he will come back again. We celebrate his first coming, his advent at Christmas time. He's coming again. John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. I told you that all the promises are fulfilled in Jesus. Here's a verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Amen? There are more promises. We could give you more promises. But here he, prom- he promised John the Baptist. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 40 as well, 700 years earlier, then 400 years earlier. Malachi, he reemphasizes the promise. Here's what it's going to be like. And then he tells us, Luke chapter 1, it's because he keeps his promises. His promises are certain, so our hope can be certain when our hope is in the promises. God always keeps his promises. That's why you can have hope. Another reason, we see it also in this passage. I told you we'd look at their story. It's because God's purposes are always bigger than our pain. God's purposes are always bigger than our pain. So you see it here with this couple. Go back up to verses 5 through 7. Zechariah and Elizabeth. He was a priest. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. She was in the priestly line as well. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But, and there's a but, there's always a but, right? But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. It's not happening. They probably stopped praying about it at this point. And here we know that the angel says, God's answered your prayers. What are you praying about? I doubt that Zechariah was even praying for a son right there. He's probably praying for the redemption of Israel. He's probably praying for the Messiah to come. And the angel says, double bonus, you're getting both prayers answered. The prayer you were praying, and you probably stopped praying about 20 or 10, 50, whoever knows how many years earlier, and also the prayer you just prayed as you walked into this holy place. Because God does beyond what we could ask or imagine. But they were at a place before that. No child, let me think about the darkness of this and this time and that time. It's a struggle now when someone struggles with infertility. So I'm not making light of that, but there are implications then that weren't now, that aren't now. Now, your child is not your retirement plan. There are economical ramifications. We got 401ks. We think of kids as expensive. Then, who's going to take care of you when you're old? It's your kids. So you don't have any kids. Who's going to take care of you when you're old? Hopeless. Socially, 
It was believed if you didn't have a child, it was because no one just chose not to have children. Then. No one's like, I chose a career. I, cho- I just didn't want, we didn't want to do that. This world's a mess. People make that choice now. It's just socially acceptable. Then that was not a socially acceptable choice. Everybody had children. So try and imagine what it was like to be Elizabeth. And Elizabeth at that time, and, and she's a priest's wife, and she comes from a line of priests. And it was believed that if you didn't have a child, it was because of your sin. So what do you think that did to her internally? Of course there were the whispers and what happened in her story. Maybe it was before she married him. Maybe she's got something going on none of us know about. What's happened? But what about for her? She knows how she's living, but then she's got to go to the Lord sometimes and go, what did I do? What did I do wrong? Just tell me, I'll make it right. The longing in her heart to have a child? It'd be so intense. And then we just read this like they were going through difficult times. This is decades of difficulty. Decades. And she has to wonder, God, are you punishing me? God, why is this happening? Because God's timing and our timing are not the same, but God's timing is perfect, amen? Amen. It was in the fullness of time that God sent his son. At just the right time, Galatians chapter 4, he sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to save people that are under the law. That's us, that he could redeem us at just the right time. I bet you the people that were 200 years earlier weren't thinking it was just the right time. Some of us might look at it and go, you could have, we have YouTube. You could have waited. Everybody could have seen you. But the people then were thinking, just the right time. People had given up. People had lost hope. That's the darkness of the situation that they're in. And what do you see? God had a plan of redemption. His purposes are always bigger than our pain. Her pain's significant. His purposes always bigger than our pain. His purposes are purposes of redemption. I was thinking about this story this week, and it reminded me of a couple that was crucial to the beginning of our church, Matt and Missy Headspeth. Uh, he was a worship leader. She was served in hospitality and various different things, and, and they struggled with infertility. A lot of people didn't know that was happening, even when we were uh, as a core group of the church, but they were crying out to God for a baby, and they wanted a baby really bad. And then they traveled to Central America to try and adopt a child. It was their point to go down there and adopt one baby, and they realized that the adoption system was a mess. Well, Misty had been trained in family law, do you think that it was an accident when she was in law school that she chose family law? Or do you think God was working out these details? Do you think that it was an accident that they struggled with infertility? Or was God working out the details that was bigger than their pain? And so then she gets the burden down while they're down there, and they decide that the Lord's leading them to stay down there and try and reform the adoption system down there. They're months away right now from opening up the, the first ever special needs orphanage in that country. Hundreds of kids are going to be impacted. Reforming the adoption system, thousands of kids impacted because of the pain of one couple. Now, miraculously, not only have they adopted two children while they're down there as residents of Panama, they've miraculously had a child biologically, and I was emailing with her this week, they just found out that they're pregnant for another child, they're going to have a little girl. That's all. God opened their womb. God can do that. But he was using their pain for bigger stuff than just about them. They reformed the laws there, opened up this orphanage, that's going to go beyond their lifetime, just so you know. Thousands of kids may be impacted. Because of their pain, God's purposes are bigger. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your pain is. Let me ask you this. What are you praying about? A lot of times that reveals our pain. What are you asking God to do? What if he did it? Well, that'd be awesome. Are you sure? Are you sure? Some of you praying for healing. Some of you praying for a child. Some of you praying for your child to turn back. Some of you praying for your spouse to trust Christ. Some of you got cancer. Some of you, different things you're praying for. Are you sure you want him to answer that prayer? Yes. I was thinking of a story last night. It's in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, there's a man at the pool of Bethesda. You know this story? He'd been there for 38 years. And Jesus comes up to him. You know the question that Jesus asked him? Do you want to be healed? Do you know why he's there? 
Because people believe that when the water stirred, that an angel was stirring the water, and the first person in would be healed. But this guy can't move. He's got nobody to get him into the water. He's hopeless. And Jesus asked this question, do you want to be, what do you think I'm doing here? Like, what are you going to say back to Jesus at that moment? Do you want to be healed? But it's a significant question. Are you sure you want God to answer your prayers? Because think about this man's life. 38 years he's been with these people. This is his community. He gets healed. He's not one of them anymore. This whole community changes. You sure you want to be healed? His prayer life's going to change. Everything about his life's going to change. He's going to answer to the Pharisees. They're going to want to know how this happened, why this happened. You sure you want, do you want to be healed? Do you want God to answer this prayer? Zechariah, are you sure you want this to happen? Because look what Zechariah does here. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? Dude, you're standing feet away from the Holy of Holies. Angel Lord just appeared. You thought you were going to die one second ago, and you want a sign. <laughs> For real, brother? <laughs> how shall I know this? And then he goes to his circumstances. A lot of times that's what we're hoping in. That's what we're looking to. For I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years. Did you read verse 7, angel? Hope's gone. Hope passed. Look at what the angel says. The angel answered him. I'm an angel. That's basically what he says. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, here's your sign. You'll be silent. Best things ever happened to you in your whole life. You're not going to be able to tell anybody about it. This, this is a rebuke, too, for his sin. This is doubt. Unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. There's no stopping God's plan. He's an unstoppable God. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Because remember, most of these guys, they rush in, they come out, he was in there for a while. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. Best news you ever had in your life, can't say a word. And they realized they had seen a vis- that he had seen a vision, it was probably on his face, they could see it on his face in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And when his time for service was ended, don't miss that, so he's, he gets this news, and he can't even go home and tell his wife. He's got to continue his priestly duties. He can't even tell his priest, you'll never believe what happened to me. <laughs> we don't. You're just not even, why are you not talking, man? This is weird. His time of service was ended. He went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden. And you want to know how difficult it was for her? Read verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Remove my disgrace, the NIV says. You see, God keeps his promises, and God's got purposes, and his purposes in your life are purposes of redemption. If you don't know Jesus, he wants you to know Jesus. If you know Jesus, he's given you a gift, and his purpose in your life is to give that gift away. What does he want you to do this Christmas? Who's your one? He wants you to share the gospel. That's the, that you've got an incredible gift that's been given to you. You can have hope, even in the midst of pain, because his purposes are bigger than your pain. He always keeps his promises, and here's the third reason. He's coming again. See, the first coming of Jesus Christ points us to the second coming. Many people believed when they studied the Old Testament there would be two messiahs. Well, they didn't realize it was the same messiah that was going to come two times. One as the suffering servant, one as the conquering king. The first time he comes, what we'll look at when we go through Luke 1 and 2, what we're going to see is these humble circumstances. He comes, he's born, and there's all these animals and the stable, and it's a mess. You know when he comes back? He comes on a horse with a whole army of God. He comes the first time, Isaiah 53, to be the suffering servant. He comes the second time to rule and to reign. And he's coming back. You know why? Because he always keeps his promises. So let me tell you what happens here. John the Baptist is born. It's a little spoiler alert for a couple weeks from now. He does exactly what God tells him to do. 
He fulfills the mission. He goes and he preaches a message of repentance. Turn, turn your hearts away from the things that you're pursuing and turn back to God. The Lord is coming. And then Jesus comes and Jesus fulfills his, his mission. He preaches a message of repentance as well. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Lord. And then he goes to seek and save that which is lost. He lives a sinless life and dies on the cross for your sins and for my sins and raises from the dead and ascends into heaven. And do you know what the angel says? Because Luke writes two books. They're both bestsellers. One's called the Gospel of Luke. The other one's called the Book of Acts. One's about the life and works of Jesus Christ. The other one's about the beginning of the church. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 11, they see Jesus ascend, and an angel says to them, he's going to come back on the clouds just like you saw him leave, but you've got a mission. Go and do the mission. You know what the mission is? You're his witnesses. Go tell people about what you've received Give the gift away, the gift, the gift of God that you've been given. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. If you've got eternal life, share that with other people. That's the mission. Why? He's coming back. That's how long you have. When's he coming back? It could be at any moment. His timing's perfect. It's been 2,000 years. When? I don't know. Promise? John chapter 14. I go. I prepare a place for you. I will come back again. He's coming back. We told you here, the key to understanding this passage, verses 16 and 17, first promise in the New Testament, same as the last promise in the Old Testament. Those people were waiting for 400 years for that promise. Do you know what promise we're waiting for? Let me read you the last two verses in the Bible. Revelation chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies these things says, surely I am coming soon. <laughs> Wait a minute, it's been 2,000 years. The Lord, a day is like 1,000 years. 1,000 years is like a day. He is outside of time. Our minds can't even comprehend that. He's not willing that any would perish, but is slow, slow, waiting for people to repent. That message that John the Baptist was preaching, the message that Jesus was preaching, the message that we go and preach. And then what does it say? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The longing of our hearts. What do you anticipate this Christmas? What do you hope for when my daughter says, 29 is better than 30? Let me tell you something. We're one day closer to Jesus coming back than we were yesterday. What are you anticipating this Christmas? Maybe he'll come back and take us all with him. Maybe, maybe he'll intervene in your life in some way. I don't know what he wants to do, but I know he always keeps his promises. Don't lose hope. I know his purposes, they're bigger than your pain. He's got purposes of redemption. He's got a mission for you to fulfill. You can be certain of that. Most excellent Theophilus. That's his burden. Who's your burden? Take the gospel to them this Christmas.